Jesus is my life. You know, I, we have sung the gospel this morning. You know, over and over and over, these songs have pointed to just the fact of the greatness of Christ, the greatness of our Father God in all of his creation, in all of his work, in all, of his, all that he's done. And we've worshipped him, and we've adored him, and we've looked to him who is our great high priest. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is continuing to talk about this morning. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me again to Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. We will look at verses 11 through 19, Lord willing, this morning. As he continues to build his case, one thing I want you to notice about what the writer of this book is doing very carefully, he could almost be looked at as being a, a legal uh, a legal brief being written because he has taken the, the reality of Christ's work and he's meticulously and carefully building upon that and building his case for the greatness of God's work in Christ and in his church. He's showing to these people, remember the people he's writing to are people who have come out of Judaism. And when they came out of Judaism, they didn't just add Christianity to their Judaism. Now some were tempted to do that. Indeed, some probably were practically doing that. They were coming and they were meeting with the body. They had trusted Christ and yet they still had a foot in the temple. They still wanted to go back. They still wanted to see the sacrifices offered. They still wanted to hear what the priest had to say. They were kind of straddling the fence, if you will. They were struggling with whether or not they should just go wholeheartedly into this thing called Christianity. But the thing the writer is wanting to see is you cannot have it both ways. You cannot be part in Judaism and part in Christianity. You cannot say, oh, I will go to the temple and I will offer the sacrifices and then I will come to the church and I'll hear Christ proclaim there is that inconsistency, there is that incongruity against doing that, about doing that. And so the, the writer is saying, listen, I want you to see the glory of Christ. I want you to see how everything that is under the old covenant, and in Dean chapter 8, he will even deal with the old covenant and the new covenant. But I want you to see how everything under the old covenant, everything under the legal system, everything under the Levitical priesthood system, everything has been replaced in Jesus Christ. Everything. Not just some of it. And while you and I are probably not tempted to go back into Judaism, because we've never been there, while we are not tempted to look for a temple that does not exist anymore, while we are not tempted to look for some kind of sacrifices of lambs and goats and bulls and rams and, and all those other things that were offered under the old covenant law, while we're not tempted to go back to Judaism, Judaism, there are things that tempt us to go back to the old way of living. There are idols that spring up. There are idols that try to distract us from Christ. There are things that, we, as we've talked about before, kind of move into our life in such a way that they eclipse God and they eclipse Jesus Christ. They don't affect them. They don't diminish them. They don't remove any of God's power or any of Christ's sacrificial power. They don't diminish that at all, but they sort of come between us and it. You know, they, they kind of get in the way. And just like a solar eclipse, the moon comes between the earth and the sun, and the sun appears to be banished, appears to be blotted out for a while. That's not a reality. It may appear that way. 
but it's not the way it is. So in our lives, we let things eclipse the reality of Christ. And that's what was happening in some ways in these early Christians. And, and the thing that the writer is saying to them is, get the things that are eclipsing Christ out of your life. Turn your face away from the old and face the new. Realize all the glorious work that Christ has done. Realize what the sacrifice of Christ on the cross actually meant. It was not just a symbol. It was not just an ideal. It was not just an example. His death on the cross accomplished something. It actually did something. And you need to live in light of what it did in your life. Get the idols out of the way. Get those things out of the way that eclipse the reality of Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says starting in verse 11. Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, and then parenthetically, for on the basis of it, the people received the law, close parentheses, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek? and not being designated according to the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed also of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. Hear that. That's very, very critical to understand. For the one concerning, concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priest. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law or physical, of physical requirement, but according to the power of of an indestructible life, for it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110 that Ricky read earlier, verse 4. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. Again, a parenthetical statement. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Now hear what the writer is saying. Understand what God's word is speaking here. Understand why he is so concerned that we grasp this idea that he goes over and over again, there's the order of Aaron, there's the Levitical priesthood, there's the order of Melchizedek, and the twain shall never meet. They are not together. They are not the same. One has replaced the other. One has moved the other out of the picture altogether, has rendered it absolutely useless, has rendered it absolutely obsolete, and to continue to try to follow after the Levitical priesthood, which was a priesthood of laws, which was a priesthood of trying to please God in your own effort, do things in your own strength in order to earn favor with God by bringing animals and bringing sacrifices and going to the priest and letting him do his work on your behalf. All of that has been rendered obsolete. Now, like I said, you're probably not tempted to go back to the temple. 
But you probably are tempted to try to live some kind of legalistic life that says, boy, if I just try harder, if I will just do better, if I can just be a good person, by the way, 98% of Americans believe that that's how you're made right with God, by just being a good person. And Paul is saying, Paul, the writer of Hebrews is saying, that is not the reality. The reality is that you are only made right with God through the work of of the priesthood. you got to have a priest to be established in right relation with God. In the Old Covenant, it was the Levites. In the Old Covenant, it was that tribe, one out of the 12, that was set apart for just service to God. No land, no farming, no crops, no, no uh, 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 flocks. They were just set aside. They received tithes, as we said last week, from the other tribes so that they would have their sustenance, so that they could live. But they were the intermediaries. They were the mediators between God and man. And you had to have a priest. And that has not changed. You still got to have a priest. The only thing is, there is a new priesthood now. The writer of Hebrews says the, the Levitical priesthood was weak and useless. And, and if it had been perfect... If it had been what was absolutely needed, then there would have been no need for a priest after the Lord of Melchizedek. There would have been no need for a new priesthood. If the old priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, were perfect and in perfection, then why would there have had to have been Jesus? There wouldn't have been. But because it was not perfect, because it was not without weakness, there arose this one, and when the priesthood changed, when this one, after the order of Melchizedek, now notice most of this chapter has been focusing on Melchizedek, Melchizedek, Melchizedek. Now he makes a, a, a subtle but dramatic and, and important change from really talking about Melchizedek to assuming now we understand that and beginning to talk about the new priest, the real priest, the true priest who is Jesus Christ. He says, and if, if there's a change in priesthood, when the priesthood is changed, verse 12, of necessity, there takes place a change of law. Now, understand what he's saying there. Is he saying that everything that God says was moral law is now obliterated? Is he saying that now it's just eat, drink, and be happy for tomorrow you may die? There's no morality. There's no ethics. It's all about the law has changed, and that law of the old covenant is gone. It's done for. It's done away with. No. Because we know that the moral law of God in the Old Testament is really based not just on the Ten Commandments, not just on the tablets of stone that were written, but the law in the Old Testament is based, is based on and, and connected to the very character of God. The moral law teaches us our need, but it also teaches us about the greatness and the perfection and the beauty and the majesty and the glory of our God. So certainly he's not saying here when the new priesthood comes, all of that moral law is done away with. Absolutely not. But there was the ceremonial law that the priest really concentrated on. 
the priest was really more concerned about the ceremonial law than he was the moral law. Now, I don't mean that in a, in a priority sort of way, but I mean in a practical sort of way. He looked at the ceremonies. He looked at the ritual, which, which brought about a forgiveness because of the moral law of God that failed in the people and failed in the priest. And he said, I'm going to concentrate on seeking forgiveness and atonement by offering these sacrifices. And so the ceremonial law was really what the Levitical priests were concentrating on in a practical sense. They weren't denying the moral law of God, but they were practically concentrating on the physical. They were practically concentrating on the ceremonial law that they might bring about forgiveness for their own sin and forgiveness for the sin of the people. Now, in this new priesthood, there's been a change of the law. Paul made it clear in writing to the Romans, you know i got to draw this back to Romans 10 or 12 times a day, because Romans is that exposition of the gospel unlike any exposition of the gospel that has ever been done. And Paul said, listen, don't you know that the law could not, by the law, no man is justified in the sight of the God? No man is justified in the sight of God based on the law because the law was weak, Paul said. And, and weak as it was, it could justify no man but God. I love the word but in Scripture. That little three-letter word, B-U-T, because every time you see it, there's a major change. There's a major change in direction. And Paul is saying there, what the law could not do, the law was weak. The law could justify no man in the sight of God but God has justified us on the basis of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. What man couldn't do, what man couldn't achieve, what man couldn't live up to, Paul said, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, God has done in Christ Jesus. The power of God and the grace of God that overcomes our shortcomings, overcomes our sin, overcomes our rebellion. And he goes on to say, you know, this one Jesus was not born according uh, in a tribe which belongs to the, the order of anyone who officiated at the altar. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. So to be a priest, he has to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek who was not on the basis of lineage or heritage, was on the basis of God's direct appointment and that's what Jesus is. He, he's from the law, he, he's from the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Judah, of Levi. And so Moses never said anything about somebody in Judah officiating sacrifices or being priest. So in verse 15, he says, and that, that, does, that makes it even clearer still. If another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, which he has, who has become such not on the basis of the law of physical requirement, but according to the power of indestructible life. I like that description of Christ's priesthood. Because you see, as we've already noted, the priest under the, uh, under the Levitical system, they died. Their life was destructible. They were susceptible to the same problems we are because of the fall. They got cancer and died. They had heart attacks and died. Probably not as many of those cases as we do today, but they had ailments that brought about death, and some of them fell off camels and died. I guess that would be synonymous to a car wreck or something today. But, but they, would, 
They died. Uh, they died unexpectedly. They died after long lives in some cases. But, but the truth is, their life was destructible. It was not permanent. It was not eternal. It was not forever. But this one, this new priest, who has risen according to the order of Melchizedek, who has been appointed by God and God alone, who has no heritage, no right to it on the basis of a, of a family heritage, this one is granted this priesthood by the power of an indestructible life. For as he said in Psalm 110, you are a priest forever. And that 110 is a messianic, messianic prophecy speaking forward to Christ. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. Now, it was weak all along. It was always weak, the old law. It was always weak because it had to be repeated over and over and over and over and over and over for thousands of years for there to be a temporal forgiveness of sin. It was weak. But it was not always useless. As a matter of fact, it was very useful in the tabernacle when they were wandering through the wilderness. It was very useful in the temple when God would meet with the high priest on the day of atonement every year and declare the forgiveness of sins for the people. And, and when the ritual placed the, the sins by, by laying their hands on the scapegoat and the scapegoat was led out of the city to fall over a cliff and die and take the sins away for the people. It was very useful in that time. But when this new priest came, when this priest came after the order of Melchizedek, when this priest came, that was a priest forever. That was an eternal priest. That was the very son of God that came not just to offer sacrifices that had to be repeated because he didn't, but who came to offer not other animals, but came to offer himself as the perfect and ultimate and eternal sacrifice for sin for all time that dealt with sin forever, that brought about forgiveness of sins, past, present, and future, that dealt with them in completeness by clothing those who believed in the righteousness of Christ alone when that priest came, the old priesthood was not only weak, but it was useless. It was replaced by the priesthood of Christ. It was, it was totally obliterated. It was totally done away with. Because now there is the priesthood of Christ. And if the priesthood of Christ is ruling and reigning and ministering in your life, then the old priesthood is gone. You don't need a priest, humanly speaking, on this earth. I don't need a human priest to go to and say, oh man, let me tell you, you won't believe what I've done. There's the sin I've committed. And for him to say, God bless you, my son, your sins are forgiven. You don't need a priest like that. Because we have a priest who reigns in the heavenly places whom we can go to directly. We have a priest who is, is standing in our stead. We have a priest who has clothed us in his righteousness. We have a priest who is our advocate before God and we don't need an intermediary. 
I remember several years ago, I had a young lady in our church in, in Orlando, and she, she started coming to, to Grace, uh, to Grace, to Sweetwater, at a, at a time when I was preaching on the family. She was single uh, at that point, but she started coming, and I would notice she would come to the late service. And, and she finally filled out a visitor's card, and she listed where she was a member at, and it was at Annunciation Church, which was the Roman Catholic Church. And, and, and I noticed she was always there at 11 o'clock, or actually 1045 service. And, and one day I asked her, I said, why aren't you coming to the, the single Sunday school? She said, well, I'm at church somewhere else when, I'm, when the single Sunday school is going on. And I said, oh, okay. She said, I have to go there so I can stay right with the priest and have my, you know, make confession and, and, and have my sins forgiven. And I come here and I'm fed the word of God. I said, oh, okay, that's interesting. And, and we talked one day again, and she said, I go there for the priest, I come here for the word. I'm glad she recognized I wasn't a priest. And, and I'm just a messenger, just a proclaimer. But, but one day, I noticed she started coming to the 9 o'clock service. And I said, I hadn't been preaching in Romans during that time, and uh, she said, uh, she sat there, and she was there in the 9 o'clock service, and I said, well, that's interesting. And then, a few weeks later, she was there in the 9 o'clock service again, and then every now and then we were having three services. She'd show up for the 8.15 service, and then we were, it were all these things. She was there. And I finally stopped her one day, had the nerve. I said, how are you doing this now? And she said, well, I'm not. I said, what do you mean? She said, I'm just coming to Sweetwater now. I said, why are you just coming to Sweetwater? She said, well, I got to realize you started talking about the old law and the, the law not being sufficient, and, and we don't have to have a mediator here on earth. We go conf confess directly to Christ, and we don't have to have someone on this earth to absolve our sins. Christ absolves our sins by his righteousness, and I came to realize I just needed to put my faith in Christ and walk with Christ, and that's all I needed. About three months later, I baptized her. She became a part of the church. She met a young man, married, and they're serving Christ together today. But the point is, we need to understand the, the glory of this new priest. We need to understand the work of Christ to do away with the old, where that, where that human mediator had to stand between us and God, and we, just did, we weren't quite good enough to get there. We weren't quite good enough to approach him face to face. We're not. But our priest is. Because our priest is God. And, and, and we're not standing there as old, wretched Bill Haynes. Man, if I had to, if I had to stand in the presence of God on the basis of, of who I am and what I am, I'd be banished forever from the presence of God, cast in the darkest pit of hell that could be found. But I don't stand there like that. I stand there clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I love that song we sang. Hey, hey, but, but, but God the just is satisfied. How's it go? To look on him and pardon me. Now, folks, if you don't understand that, you don't understand the gospel. If you don't understand that, you're going to get all wrapped up and all tied up in legalism and you're going to struggle for the rest of your life on this whole thing that the Hebrews are struggling with. Do, do I have to live my foot over here trying real hard to please God or do I recognize that if I'm in Christ, I stand clothed in his righteousness as a changed 
person. Now, that doesn't mean you say, okay, let's go out and sin all we want to so grace will abound more. Paul said to that, God forbid. No. But when we are clothed in his righteousness, there's not only that positional perfection by which we stand before God, but there is that practical change of life that takes place where God begins to fold us and mold us and shape us into the very image of Jesus Christ, which is to be our goal, which is to be our desire based on this glorious truth for the law made nothing perfect. I talked to someone last week, not a member of our church, might would have disciplined them if they were, who said, Pastor, I believe I'm right with God because I keep all the Ten Commandments. And they believe that. They really thought they did. And I said, boy, you've, you've never coveted anything? What do you mean by covet? I mean, really wished you had that and wished somebody else didn't have it so you could have it and you just wanted it more than anything else in life. Well, maybe a little bit. A little bit breaks that law. You mean to tell me you've never put anything before God? You, you've never let a recreation or a, or a job or a, another person be more important to you than your walk with God? You've never allowed that? Well, yeah, but that doesn't count. I mean, it doesn't count. Of course it counts. You either live by the law perfectly or you live by under the grace of Christ with faith in Christ you don't have it both ways this person said oh I, I believe in Jesus I just believe we got to keep the law in order to keep that belief in Jesus up to date that's how they put it I said you're, you're, you're living like these Hebrews did you're trying to live according to the law and you're hoping that Jesus is sufficient if you do enough. I want to declare to you today that Jesus is sufficient if you trust him and put your faith in him and he has clothed you in his righteousness. He is sufficient no matter what happens with you in the law. You can't keep the Ten Commandments. You can't live by the golden rule. You can't live by the Beatitudes. And God never intended for you to. All of those are given, especially the Ten Commandments, are given to show you your inability and then to show you that your only hope is the ability of Christ. Wow. For the law made nothing perfect. The law made nothing perfect. The law won't make you perfect. law won't make culture perfect. The law made nothing perfect because it couldn't. It was weak. And on the other hand, there's a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. You know what that hope is? It's faith in Christ. On the other hand, the God who gave the law, the law is of God. 
But the God who gave the law is now bringing in a better hope. And through that hope, we draw near to God. The law won't draw you near to God. You can't draw near to God by the law or by your goodness or by what you perceive as your, as a friend of mine put it in his book, your churchianity. You can only draw near by the hope that is in the priest that has replaced the Levitical priesthood who clothes you in his righteousness, who changes your life, who makes you new. Draw near in that new hope. Draw near in Jesus Christ. This is the priesthood that really, really does something. And does it forever. Does it forever. Eternal life. Forever life in Christ. Not because of your work. Not because of your deeds. Well, those will follow, but because of the work of Christ in your life. Let's pray. While you're praying silently, I want to ask musicians if they can flip back to before the throne of God above. I want to sing that as our closing hymn, our hymn of commitment. But I want you praying right now. I want you to ask God, God, am I really drawing near to you on the basis of the priesthood of Christ? That he has taken my place. That he's put an end to all my sin. Or am I still trying to do it legalistically? Am I still trying to say, oh man, if I can just get good enough, I know that God will save me. I know that I'll be right with God. Where's your hope? If your hope is in what you can do, then your hope is misplaced and your hope is hopeless. But if it is in Christ, and if it is in Christ alone, <laughs> there is freedom. And there is peace, and there is forgiveness, 
and there's newness of life. I think that's the message of this writer to Hebrews to you and me. Don't try to live in the law and in Christ. You can't do both. Father, we are bowing before you as sinners. But in most of our cases, sinners who are saved by your grace. but people who are still struggling every day and people whom Satan is still accusing every day because he's the great accuser. And in accusing us, if we are in Christ, he is doing his other role as the great liar. Father, you don't have to be convinced, but we need for you to convince us that we are yours and you care for us more than we could ever imagine and your work even difficult times and even things that we consider bad things are being used by you to mold us and shape us into the image of Christ Lord, Satan's told us the lie that if you're really walking with God, everything will be just hunky-dory. You'll be wealthy, you'll be healthy, and you'll have everything you want. Job walked with you and found out that that was a lie, but you were faithful. Joseph walked with you unlike any man I've ever read about either historical or contemporary, and yet he became a slave because his brother's mistreatment. He was seduced and resisted that temptation. He, he was thrown back in prison or thrown in prison because of that and, and left there to rot and forgotten. And, and that's not what the health and wealth gospel would tell us that a real believer is, but he was a real believer. Lord, you take us through difficult valleys in order to show us your grace, in order to do work in our life that we cannot even comprehend apart from the difficulties. Father, I, I pray right now, because I know some of our people are going through tough times. I pray right now, Lord, that they will see your glory and your sufficiency in the middle of all that because they have a superior priest to every priest that's ever lived and he has replaced them forever mm. Father it's in you that we trust in your only son Jesus Christ where we place our faith and I pray for men and women that need to know you, that your Holy Spirit will open their eyes and their hearts right now to trust you where they're sitting and where they'll be standing in a moment as we sing. And Father, I pray for others here who are still struggling with the old legalism and grace and, and, and they're having a difficult time understanding that you have accomplished it all if they are in you.
that they need to live in light of that with hope and with confidence. Father, do that in our lives. We call ourselves Grace Baptist Church. The most important word there is grace. Help us live by grace. Help us demonstrate grace as a church. Grace to one another. And grace to those who need to come to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name.